You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Caton Sheff, Medical Director of the Lafayette Allergy and Asthma Clinic in Lafayette, Indiana. Non-invasive methods are ideal for diagnosing and measuring asthma to determine the most appropriate therapy for a patient. Biomarkers can play a key role in this process. Joining us to discuss monitoring control in asthma, do biomarkers have a role, and how do asthma management plans help, is Dr. Stanley Feynman. Dr. Feynman is Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine and is currently practicing in Marietta, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Feynman. Thank you. Well, let's start with, well, what role do biomarkers play in monitoring asthma? Well, biomarkers are really, at this time, they do not play a significant role clinically, but if you read the studies, the investigations in our medical journals, they're all over the medical journals because there are some biomarkers available now that can be used to monitor the inflammation in the lungs, and with that, we can help monitor control and asthma. So it's not really a practical thing at this time, but I think down the road, it probably will be. Well, of the various biomarkers out there, which ones do you think will be coming to the forefront soon, and which ones do you think are going to be a while before we can use? Well, I think that the the only one that's really available for uh, physicians in practice right now is exhaled nitric oxide. And exhaled nitric oxide is really a device that you can you can use to measure how much uh, nitric oxide, which is basically a, a result, nitric oxide results from inflammation in the mucosa. So you see an elevation in nitric oxide with increased inflammation in the airway. And there is a device, a commercial device that you can purchase and measure the exhaled nitric oxide. And in fact, some people are doing it, you know, in their practices right now. It's a very expensive device in the $50,000 range for the full monitoring device itself, although it looks kind of like a spirometer. I mean, you basically blow in it to it like a spirometer, but it calculates the patient's exhaled nitric oxide, and you can you know, measure that each time the patient comes in and see basically how their inflammation is doing based on the exhaled nitric oxide level. Are there ones that you think will be available down the road that, that we should be reading about that are going to be the future in 5 to 10 years? I think that exhaled nitric oxide will be the future in 5 to 10 years. We also have available methicoline challenger airway hyperactivity measurements. This is another biomarker of inflammation or airway hyperactivity. It's been around for a long time. It's also not a very practical measurement for us to use because it's difficult for the patients. We certainly don't like to have the patients perform the methicoline challenge. This is a test where a patient comes into the lab, the pulmonary lab, they inhale the methicoline through a dosimeter, and you measure their lung functions after various dosages of the methicoline. In an asthmatic who has airway hyperactivity, the airways go into spasm, and you see a fall in their lung function, a fall in their FEV1. Whereas if somebody who doesn't have airway hyperactivity, doesn't have asthma, you don't see this fall. The more methicoline that it takes to cause the fall of the FEV1, the fall in the lung function by the 20% mark, then the more stable the airways are. The less methicoline that's needed, the more hyperreactive the airways are, the less control the asthma is in. So in other words, it's kind of a reverse type of situation. But methicoline challenge is, is a way that's used in studies and has been used And in fact, there are studies out that have reported that if you measure methicoline challenge on a regular basis, let's say every three months, patients tend to be in better control, which means they have fewer 
ER visits, fewer uh, hospitalizations, less use of their rescue medication, their rescue inhaler, less use of systemic steroids. Now, the interesting thing in these studies, if you look at them in detail, you'll see that one of the characteristics after the, usually these are one-year studies, the average dose of the inhaled steroid in the patients who were followed monitoring with methacholine was higher than those who were just monitored with just normal symptomatic measures. So it seems that, at least in some of the studies, because we're measuring these inflammatory markers, the dosages of the inhaled steroids tend to be a little higher in some of these patients, and that could be the reason that they're under better control. Or maybe that we're really under-treating many of our patients because we don't have that insight that the biomarkers are giving us. It's a good point. We may be under-treating. I mean, we do know you and I both see patients that come in, and some patients are very uh, sensitive to their dyspnea. In other words, they have a very acute sense of their uh, shortness of breath, and they may report symptoms a lot sooner than other patients that are less sensitive to their dyspnea, and they tend to under-report their symptoms. And certainly if they under-report, and it may not show up on a spirometry, we do know that spirometry is a good measure of airway obstruction. We do measure that every time you know we monitor our asthmatic patients, but Sometimes the lung function may be normal, but there still may be inflammation in the airways. And we see that in studies with exhaled nitric oxide, sputum eosinophils, and things like that that are reported in the medical literature. What other methods for monitoring asthma control are there that might work in conjunction with all of these biomarkers? Well, one of the things that we're doing in our office is the asthma control test, which is basically a validated questionnaire. There are several of these available. The simplest one is this asthma control test, which is just five questions. The patients, they come into the office. After the nurse works them up, they sit and they do the questionnaire. It just takes them a couple of minutes, and we add it up. If the score is 19 or less, then it indicates that they're not in control. Of course, everyone knows the new guidelines. I know you just had a program about the guidelines and control. The guidelines are really stressing is the patient in control or not in control. So this five you know, question questionnaire, which is available online, if you just Google asthma control test, you'll be able to download the, the questions. And we found it very helpful in, in our practice because it shows the patients basically another way we can determine their airway, how we measure asthma control. Are you doing that instead of spirometry, in addition? How are you mixing that? We are doing it in addition to spirometry. It's interesting because we occasionally will find that even with normal spirometry, the patient may have a low asthma control test score. And when you start inquiring a little bit more, like, you know, how much are you using your beta agonist when you're running? Or, you know, do you really wake up at night? They're doing it more than you think, and they just happen to come in on a good day where their spirometry is good. You know, when we see them in the office, we see one moment in time, kind of like a photograph, whereas the asthma control test score asks the patients, how do they do over the last four weeks? and makes something that's relatively subjective, such as how much time your asthma has kept you from doing the things you want to do, or how many times have you had shortness of breath, or asthma symptoms, or if you used your rescue inhaler. I mean, some of these questions we're going to ask the patients. You know, we do ask them when they come in about, you know, how often they use your inhaler, but sometimes the patients may not really focus on that, and sometimes they, you know, minimize their symptoms, and, you know, we only can get the information from the patients as, as good as we can, and it's sometimes they want to show us that they're in control, so they want us to be pleased, and they may over estimate their level of control. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Caton Sheth, and joining me today to discuss monitoring control in asthma, 
Do biomarkers have a role, and how do asthma management plans help? Is Dr. Stanley Feynman, clinical associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine and currently practicing in Marietta, Georgia. Well, let's talk a little bit about asthma management plans. Do they help us? I think they help us a lot. We use asthma management plans on everyone, and we give them to the patient, and we keep the record in the chart. We photocopy them and and, and put them in the chart because we then can change it, you know, when the patients come in. It sort of amazes me sometimes when the patients come back after we see, you know, at the interval when we see them, you know, they may not be using their controller medicine twice a day when we told them to use it twice a day, or let's say they've stopped using this or whatever. They sometimes get confused with the instructions. And so the confusion issue, when they write it all down, it's helpful for them, but it's also helpful for them to look and see, oh, yes, we really did go through this, and we do want you to use the controlling medicine. So I think it's a very useful tool for you know, managing our asthmatics, and I think the patients really like that. What types of things other than the written plan, and I know we've talked about the asthma control test, we've talked about ENO, exhaled nitric oxide as perhaps something in 5 to 10 years, but what other things are markers of control from a clinician's perspective? Well, from the clinician's perspective, the inhibition or you know, difficulty doing their normal function not able to participate in sports if you, you have a child, let's say, or an adult who likes to do running or some kind of vigorous activity. Nighttime awakenings, obviously wheezing or coughing, these are all things that you're going to ask them. So functional status, you know, how the patient's functioning is very important in measuring asthma control. So we always ask them that. Daytime symptoms, I think it's good to ask them how many times they've used their inhaler, you know, in a week, their rescue inhaler in a week, because Daytime symptoms are important. Nighttime symptoms are important. How many times do they wake up at night? I mean, does this, you know, bother them? Do they have to use their rescue? Do they they sleep with their rescue inhaler right by their bed? Because when they wake up, they have to use it. So the use of the quick-relief inhaler is a good way to monitor control as well. It's something we always ask about. Patient self-reporting is obviously important. Whether or not they missed work or school or whether or not they had to come into the, you know, go to the emergency room or have to increase their utilization of healthcare resources, and, of course, you know, when we or see them in the office, we usually do a, a lung function spirometry because, you know, we feel that that's something that we need to monitor as well. And it really helps to get the patients thinking about their lung function and how important the control is. One of the things I, I didn't mention about the asthma management plan, I've noticed that there are some managed care organizations, and we, you know, certainly see patients with some of the managed care organizations who are requiring patients to have asthma management plans these health plans are requiring patients to have asthma management plans to document that we are, in fact, recommending inhaled steroids because, unfortunately, sometimes patients don't, you know, fill all the prescriptions that we give them and may not use a controller because sometimes they don't feel it working. I mean, because it is an inhaled steroid, and inhaled steroids really, you know, you don't feel the bronchodilatation with those. You mentioned rescue inhaler, and, and obviously people know that that's albuterol or their medicine that they need for a quick relief. Should uh, Obviously, all patients should have them, but should they have an endless supply of a rescue inhaler? What do you recommend? Well, it's very interesting you said that. I, I had a patient today who uses a prescription formulary that wants a three-month supply. Okay, so I gave them three of their controller and with a refill so that they could get it for six months. But their rescue inhaler, I would only give them one with one refill, and they said, well, why don't you give me three? And I said, because I don't want you to have three. I think it's wrong to give patients too many rescue inhalers that they can refill. I give them one refill, you know, one inhaler with one refill, 
So if there's a problem, you know, they can, if they lose it or whatever, they can get the one refill. But if they're using more than that, I, I want them to call me. I want them to know that they're overusing their short-acting beta agonist. Now, you and I both do this on a daily basis, but let's talk about overusing. What do you mean by that? They're using one of these rescue inhalers over a year, a month, a week. What's your trigger or what kind of numbers do you get concerned about? I think if they're using one a month, that's something to be concerned about. One, you know, rescue inhaler, they need a refill, you know, in a month. That's something you need. That that should trigger you in your office to say, there's something wrong here. I mean, some people would say, well, maybe if they're using one, you know, rescue inhaler in two months, you should be concerned about that as well. So clearly, I think if you're having a patient that's calling you for a refill on their rescue inhaler and they're using more than one, they need another rescue inhaler every one to two months, I think that that's a red flag for us as clinicians that we need to have them come back to the office and certainly see what's going on. One of the things you talked about was obviously patients having a written action plan and really gave a a great case for why people should have that. In the guideline updates that were 2002 or so, they gave some data that you could have a verbal action plan would be just as good as a written one. What are your thoughts on an oral or verbal action plan for patients uh, rather than the written one? We, you know, when it first came out in the early, early, I guess it was 2000, 2002, whenever, we did the verbal and we didn't really write it down that much. But in the last couple of years, we've been writing it down. Because I think it's much better for the patients. I have patients come in, you know, with their action plan, showing us that, you know, they keep it because this is what they follow when they start getting sick. And it's a very good tool for them. I mean, if those of uh, your listeners, uh, the listeners who may not know what an action plan means, it's basically broken up into three categories. The top category is the daily medications. This is what we use for controllers. If they're using their controller, how many times a day do they need it? And, you know, what medicines do we want them to use on a regular basis? The second tier of the asthma management plan is if they start having symptoms. That's when we usually add albuterol, a rescue inhaler to use. We have them use it every six hours for, you know, a day or two or whatever. I mean, you don't want them to use it for too much. And then the third tier of the action plan is when the symptoms are are, are not controlled with the bronchodilator, we always tell them to call us because at that point, they usually are going to need some kind of systemic steroid or, you know, some further treatment. And and I think that's a, a red flag that they need to get more help. I would like to thank my guest from Emory University School of Medicine, Dr. Stanley Feynman. Dr. Feynman, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. Thank you. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM157. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit ACAAI.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.